Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. I always hoped someone I loved would read between the lines I could not speak. But it took a new century for my code to be broken. This program features the work of 2019 writer Diane April. In the first half, you'll hear her conversation with curator Kathleen Flanagan, recorded in the Jack Straw Studio. A warning to our listeners. This podcast includes frank discussions of rape and sexual assault. So describe your Jack Straw project and, and how you came to it. It's a project that I've been working on in phases for a very long time. It's basically a memoir that's the story of my relationship with my Aunt Aline, who was known to everyone as Eni. And this particular memoir is written in my voice primarily, but it's the story of how we uh, interacted over the course of time. So she, she was my mother's sister and the only one of the four girls in the family, it was a large family, who did not marry. And I was intrigued by her story from the time I was a, a little girl. And one of the things that intrigued me was the amount of secrecy and mystery and hidden, quiet talk about her. And um, so over time, I learned more and more of her story, even up until, you know, a couple of years ago, I was still learning things. So that's made it evolve in kind of a, an odd way, where every time I think I've got the nut of her story, it turns into something else. And that's life. But it's also made it hard for me to stay on a steady path with it because of these, these secrets that are revealed. Um, so in, in this book, what I'm doing is addressing an, a number of things about her and her story that I think also have a larger um, meaning for the culture at large, particularly women and mental health and rape culture. You want to read something for us? Yeah. A piece from the memoir? I would describe this as um, a lineated flash lyric essay. Okay. (laughs) When she told us nothing happened... We were fine with her story. Why wouldn't we be? No mess, no fuss. Just blame it on her nervousness. They say she was a hothouse flower, a virgin to the ways of the world. Just an overreaction, we told ourselves. You know how excited she gets in a thunderstorm or on a busy highway. She, for her part, laughs off the notion that the man did anything at all. She blames herself for the rest of it, her naivete. Yes, he took her someplace she'd never been before, she admits. A dark place. She can't really tell us where. It was new to her. There were rooms, beds, coke highballs, a jukebox, a dance floor. We searched for and found convenient excuses for why, after that night, she felt compelled to wash her hands till the skin peeled away, till hand towels flopped into soggy piles. 
why she insisted on using an elbow to open grocery store doors, lost weight by the dress sizes, down to the bone, never dated again, never married, never bore a child. I would be lying, she insists, right up to her deathbed, if I said anything happened. And I, we, were quick to believe that transparent lie that lay in wait for someone, anyone, to dispute, dissect, hold her story up to the light of day and see through it. Mm. Thank you. That piece is very much from your point of view. Yes. Yes. One thing I love about it is that there's no judgment about her mental illness. Mm -hmm. It's not something you're afraid of in this as a child. It's just part of who she is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, as a journalist for 20, 30 years, I often had the opportunity to explore some of the things that I wondered about Enie and her mental health with professionals because I had a beat for a while of mental health coverage. But what I think um, happened to me very early on was not to stigmatize mental illness because though she did have these issues, she was so much a part of our life and nobody treated her any differently than anybody else. Nobody um, ever called her crazy or something like that. In fact, that word was like banished from my vocabulary by my mother for that reason. So, yeah, it did. It, it made me more open to seeing mental illness as something that's just one part of a person, not the whole person. Mm -hmm. And um, that was a, a blessing, really, to have that happen to me at a young age. And so, but it complicated the storytelling because, you know, there were things that I didn't even see as odd or eccentric because they were just who she was, that I had to think about later when I was exploring, you know, how this had happened and why she hadn't talked about it. And uh, the same with rape, I think. Um, I think the fact that, it's, this is almost the reverse, but the fact that nobody could say the word in the family made it more important to me to... Um, destigmatize that in my mind. It's never happened to me, thank God. But with other people, it's like it if it happened to her, it was it was not her fault. It was not anything she did. It was something separate and it shouldn't be a judgment on her or her behavior. What do you think about the timing of of you coming finally to write the story and then this sort of social maelstrom around you as you write it. It's amazing to me that it's happened this way uh, because when I did the last interview with the last remaining person in the family and she clarified that it was rape, I was go going back to talk to her again and very oddly, she died the week that I was supposed to go there, and I just missed being able to do another interview with her. But within a year and a half or two, maybe, the whole Me Too movement just burst onto the scene, and it was a headline on every newspaper. So I felt um, energized by that, and I felt 
supported by that, and I felt um, like the timing somehow worked out on purpose, you know, that there was some kind of intentional thing going on there because people are more ready, I think, to hear a story like this, and they need to hear stories like this. And and then it began to make more sense to me, too, why she never wanted to tell and, and uh, why nobody wanted to talk about it. It seemed just to be a part of what the society demanded in, at that time. There, there was no other way for her to deal with it. And then the longer she kept it a secret, which I know from my research, it's the harder to ever tell it, you know. It, it becomes part of your makeup, you know, that that secret is there. Mm-hmm. And then obviously in the middle of this whole discussion of rape that we're having, you know, her her brother, my uncle, was one of the people who encouraged the to not talk about it and, mm-hmm. and came up with the idea of the hothouse flower that she was just overreacting. And, and her doctors were all male. And I think they were probably doing the best that they could at the time, and they were living in a, a society that was a certain way and that they were expected to act a certain way. But we know that women were hospitalized, lobotomized, all of that much to a much larger degree than men were. That's a fact. Talk a little bit about that, about taboo. I mean, there's the taboo of the, of the original story, and then there's the taboo of you know, telling a loved one's story when she hasn't told it herself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the taboo of of dealing with this controversial issue and this painful issue is a little less hard for me to deal with now than it was earlier, partly because of Me Too. At the beginning, it was much harder for me when I first began to write the story. It was just hard for me to think about it that way. But particularly um, thinking about revealing somebody else's story, uh, particularly somebody who tried very hard to keep it a secret until the very end, it's been off and on a block for me. Um, But one of the things I always remember, and I try to tell myself, and I can even listen to her saying on tape that I recorded was, because I told her I was writing the book. She said, if, if I can help other people in any way, I want you to tell the story. And I felt like, in a sense, that was her permission to me to keep digging. Now we'll hear a selection from Diane's live reading. So this is told in my aunt's voice, not mine. The riddled past. The night it happened, rain fell in wind-blown sheets across downtown Louisville, the boisterous downpour moving from west to east, clouding the air, saturating the sky. I don't remember lightning or thunder, just the dull roar of rainfall and the clatter of drops hitting the awning above me. It was late autumn. Dried up moldy leaves splattered the wet sidewalks of Fifth Street, piling up doorway corners of the armory. I stood there under the building's overhang, behind the bus stop, 
trying to keep dry the Selman's dress box wedged under my arm. The dress inside, a lovely steel gray wool number with a matching jacket, was an early birthday present from mom. The waist, though, was a bit too loose for me, and I had intended to return it for a smaller size after work. But I knew now it would be soaked by the time I made it to the store a few blocks away. I'd have to do it another day. Looking back, this was the first sign of the bad luck that would come my way that evening. I prepared myself to take the dress box on the bus with me home to Butchertown, where Mom and my brother Red were waiting. We had planned an outing to Middletown, to Laura's house, for a late dinner. I knew Red would be eager to head out for the long drive as soon as I walked in the door. But now, due to the wind and rain, buses were running woefully late. I wished that I had argued harder to put off our dinner to some other night. This was, after all, the last day of my ballot counting job with the county election board. I'd been hired to record tallies in the presidential election, which, by the way, FDR carried handily in Jefferson County. The job had turned out to be quite a lot of fun, the other workers a friendly bunch. In fact, it was the seduction of their camaraderie that led to my first wrong move of the night. When a good-looking fellow in a shiny black Ford pulled up to the armory curb where I was standing with one of my new work friends, a woman much older than I, she recognized him right away. He dates my daughter sometimes, she whispered to me over my shoulder. When he shouted out an offer to drive her home, she begged off. She had dinner plans, she said. But my friend here, she said, pointing to me, she could use a ride over to Franklin Street. I shook my head a firm no, first to her and then to him. I gestured toward the bus stop, smiled, and with my free arm tried to wave him away. But he didn't leave. In fact, he leaned over toward the passenger's door and shoved it wide open. Come on, get in. I'll drop you off on my way home. I remember feeling a catch in my throat, a familiar taste of dread, but I got in. I threw the Selman's box in the back seat, scooted in beside the man whose name I didn't yet know, and waved goodbye to my girlfriend who stood on the sidewalk. She laughed and waved back. I pulled the door shut and we took off. Though I didn't know it then, didn't think the wariness I felt was anything more than my usual uneasiness with strangers, it would, in the end, turn out to be the ride of my lifetime. Nothing happened, not really. But it's true, my life was never the same afterwards. The hand washing, the tears, the phobias, the frightening thoughts, the shocks, surgeries, hospitalizations. As soon as we pulled away from the curb, he said his name was Larry and asked if it was okay with me if he made a stop before taking me home. I said, sure, but why? I knew Mom and Red were waiting for me. Maybe it was my accommodating nature or, like Sam said so many times over the next seven decades, perhaps I was a naive, a hothouse flower unaccustomed to the ways of the big wide world. Whatever the reason, I was praying beneath my breath that Red would not be too angry with me when I got home late. Before I knew it, though, we were headed out of town, all the way out Dixie Highway, past farms and fields, to where the road narrowed to two lanes. 
As the rain began to let up, I realized he was taking me to someplace I'd never been before, down a country road, gravel and rock. When he pulled up in front of a small frame house with light glowing from every window, he said, come on up with me. I just have to see someone here. We walked up to the door, and I noticed to the side of the house a man was plucking a chicken. I hadn't seen that since I was a girl. Larry knocked one time firmly. The door opened to a woman with a big, warm, welcoming smile. Come in, come in. The first thing I saw inside was a jukebox, like the one at my brother's tavern. Then I noticed a dance floor beyond it and tables with lit vigil candles glimmering as they did at St. Joe's, my parish church. We took seats at a small round table closest to the jukebox, and the woman, Ginny was her name, asked what we'd like to drink. By now, I was uneasy enough to feel a bit outside my body. I didn't drink much in those days, other than a beer now and again, so I asked for Laura's drink of choice, a Coke highball. Larry ordered a bourbon neat. When Ginny returned with our drinks, I remembered fidgeting and him noticing and looking concerned. I've often asked myself, why didn't I tell him right then to take me home? Because that's when everything changed. As I took a first sip from my glass, Ginny shot Larry a glum look. I'm sorry, hon, we don't have any rooms downstairs available right now, but we should have one upstairs soon. All I remember after those words sunk in was shooting up to my feet, pulling myself together, telling Larry to take me home right then, right that moment, not a minute later. I remember he stood up, threw some bills on the table, then took my elbow and steered me out of the room, out of the door, out of my mind. As we drove back the gravel road, I cried and trembled and repeated over and over, take me home. As we made our way back the two-lane Dixie Highway, back to town, back to the three-story brick house with the iron fence and swinging gate, back to its rooms that were now empty. They'd gone on without me. I was alone. Suddenly, I felt dirty. I dropped the dress box on a chair, went to the bathroom sink, turned on the faucet, and let the water rush into my palms and through my fingers. But why? Nothing happened. I never told anyone anything happened. I emphasized always that nothing happened. Postscript, 2019, Breaking the Code. May I clear something up? That story you just heard, the one I told so many people so many times for so many years, told it to family and friends, to shrinks and priests, to brain surgeons and tape recorders, that story never made sense. And yet, nearly everyone believed it. Hardly anyone questioned it. Contrary to my mantra of nothing happened, something did happen. I'm not sure I'm ready yet to tell you what, not the specifics. I'll leave that to later. First, let me bring you in closer. Enter my story. Witness for yourself how one wrong step can lead to another. How, when bad things happen to good people, those people sometimes never come clean. How a violation of one's body, 
can subvert one's mind. Spend some time with secrets, with mysteries, with the sheer immobilizing weight of cultural taboo, religious upbringing, male authority, female fear. I always hoped someone I loved would read between the lines I could not speak, but it took a new century for my code to be broken. So let me just say this once and for all before we go any further. Something happened. Thank you. Sound Pages is a Jackstraw production produced by Alyssa Keene and Daniel Gunther at Jackstraw Cultural Center. Our recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, Tom Stiles, and Ayesha Ubiatilaka. Our theme music is by the Bird Tribe Orchestra, produced through the Jackstraw Artist Support Program. The 2019 curator of this program is Kathleen Flanagan, and the narrator for this podcast is Alyssa Keene. The Jack Straw Writers Program was inspired by an over-the-back-fence conversation in 1996 between author Rebecca Brown and Jack Straw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz. The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks go to Larry Lawrence for transcribing our writers' interviews. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jackstraw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jackstraw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.